hey, this, uh, this Wednesday, anyone know what Wednesday is? Ash Wednesday, good, you guys are learning. So Lent uh, officially begins in a few days. We won't have an official um, Ash Wednesday service for space reasons, but I encourage you at some point on Wednesday to maybe have a, maybe a special time with the Lord um, and to maybe kind of think deeply upon what the season means. Um, if you aren't familiar with what Lent is, a lot of times, is that the thing in the belly button? You know, people think that's what we're talking about. Too much information, I'm sorry. Uh, we wrote a, um, this is, um, you should have been handed this, and if you didn't get one, we've got many copies. We have, it's on our website, it's a free download. This is something that we put together this week. This is a, um, kind of the main things I have learned about Lent in the past eight or nine years. One of the common questions we get is, isn't Lent a Roman Catholic thing? And then I always sarcastically respond with, it's an ancient Jesus thing. <laughs> and there's a, some interesting accounts of the generation that saw Palm Sunday, they saw the crucifixion, they saw the resurrection. So the, the generation of disciples that actually experienced the events of Holy Week. Um, after the ascension, they began to reenact and rehearse what happened during Holy Week so that they wouldn't forget what happened. And they would actually get real palm branches and like do the triumphal entry again, and then they would reenact Monday, Thursday, and then they would go and, and reenact Good Friday, and then they would you know, f- kind of stay up all day Saturday and fast and pray for Silent Saturday or Holy Saturday, and then they began to worship on Sunday, not Saturday, because it was the Lord's Day, it was the Resurrection Day. Even now, we're here on Sunday as like residue from that practice. And so kind of the question that I ended up kind of coming to myself is, if those who saw the resurrection felt necessary to do some intentional things so that they wouldn't forget, why have we kind of thrown some of that stuff aside? And it's, the answer is it's not for good reason. So for, the, I think, eight, eight years or so, we've been um, living into this um, in kind of a way that seems right for us. And so this is um, a lot of the information that I have learned. There's some prayers in here, some devotions. Um, and um, so I, I'm really um, excited to enter into that. I would um, encourage you to, um, if you've never kind of stepped into Lent, to, um, to try it and to take a step towards Jesus uh, this year. We're going to focus, there's six Sundays during Lent, right? We think that the week, the, uh, the events of Holy Week are too profound to just, like, run up upon. And so we think it, it takes six weeks of honest preparation of our soul to begin um, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And uh, I know when we started doing this in our church, I would hear from people who had been in church their entire life, and they would say that, that following Easter, this is the most powerful and significant and heartfelt Easter I've ever celebrated, because for six weeks, you really entered into the story. So I want to encourage you to do that. For six weeks, we're going to focus on prayer um, starting next week, and we're going to kind of live in the Lord's Prayer over the next six weeks and really dig into the kind of the basic foundational, this is how the Lord taught us to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. 
not this is what you should pray. And unfortunately, a lot of people pray the words of the Lord's Prayer. They don't necessarily know how to pray in the spirit of the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to um, teach you and maybe remind you how to pray the Lord's Prayer without necessarily saying it, although saying it is a good thing. And I'm going, I've been learning how to, how to pray the Lord's Prayer in Spanish. I have got a coach that's helping me. And so um, I, we're going to try during Lent, to, during communion as a congregation, to pray the Lord's Prayer in Espanol. So start Googling and YouTubing how to do that. And uh, we're all going to do it together. And I'm going to try to not sound like a gringo. So that is coming up. I'm super excited. Um, in 2009, I had the privilege to um, travel to Africa and spend a week in the country of uh, Tanzania and um, spent some time with a pastor on the island of Zanzibar, which is this little island right off of it. And the pastor's name was Dixon. I got a picture of us. I was so young. <laughs> That's me. That's me. It's baby Drew. And so I spent um, a week with Dixon uh, with some other friends. And uh, we went to encourage him and see how our church could partner with him because they needed a lot of help. He, on the island of Zanzibar, it was 99% Muslim. And he had a church of 800 people in his church. And um, this is pretty crazy. Is um, We were there on um, the last week of the month. And he invited us to a prayer meeting at his church. Now, the prayer meetings I've been to, there's like five people, right? He had 150 people show up to this prayer meeting at his church on a Wednesday night. And this is awful, but we were, um, they asked us to preach. And so our pastor thought, I'm going to preach on the bread of life. And so he got these like big loaves of bread and he had this table in front, this big loaves of bread. And I remember thinking, these Africans are really paying attention. And they were, they were like this the whole time, hanging on every word. So we thought, we then learned after the sermon that their custom every month is their entire church fasts the last week of the month. And they meet on the last Wednesday at the prayer meeting to have one last prayer meeting, and then they break their fast with a porridge um, after, after dinner. <laughs> they didn't tell us. And we paraded these like seven loaves of bread out in front of them, and it was awful. It's like a, but it really struck me like, oh my goodness, you got this, you got 150 people. I can't get 150 people here on a Sunday morning in America. He's at 150 coming to fast and pray. And he was being persecuted. Um, one of the uh, local imams of one of the, the Muslim synagogues there, his wife got deathly sick. And they took her to the doctors. They, they couldn't help. They took her to witch doctors and tried all kinds of voodoo. Could help. His wife, out of desperation, goes to Dixon's church. Their church prays for her, and she gets healed. And so the imam and his wife leave Islam and join this Christian church because when you're on your deathbed and the church of Jesus prays for you and you get healed, they get your attention and this angered the community. And shortly after we left, they had blown up his car. Um, after we left, they had broken into his church and poured gasoline on all the instruments and set them on fire. 
And, the, and, and all, the mean, all the while, his church, it, I mean, people are coming to the Lord and getting healed. It's crazy. So right at this moment, I was talking to him. This is, this is their old church. And notice the windows. Look how small the windows are. They're like the size of a brick. And I'm the young guy on the trip, and I think, um, you know, I'm trying to be quiet. And they're asking all these, like, serious questions. You know, well, how did you pray for her? What did you say? You know, like, what's it? You know, they're asking great questions. The only question I have as a wannabe architect was, why are the windows like that? I've never seen windows like this. And they finally asked me, Drew, do you have any questions? And I was young and dumb, and I was like, Dixon, this is crazy. But why are the windows in your old church like this? And he said, they used to be bigger, but... Um, this community uh, of, you know, of Muslims, angered at what was happening in their church, would come and they would throw rocks at the people when they're worshiping. And one time when he was preaching, someone threw a rock and hit him in the face and bloodied his face and he almost passed out in front of everyone. So they had to put concrete in and make the windows smaller. He said, I reached down and picked up a rock about the size of a baseball I have it. We, um, I tried to find it so I could bring it and show you. It's in a box somewhere. When we moved, I, I found it. Um, and I thought, I've gotten some angry emails. I've never had anyone throw a rock at my head for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And every now and then when I have a hard time, I, I, I pick up that rock on my bookshelf and I remember, as bad as I'm struggling, no one's blowing up my car. No one's come in here and blown up our instrument. No one's hit my head with a rock. And yet in the midst of that persecution, their church was blessed. I mean, incredible stuff. And so um, here's a, I got a picture of the new church. They, they built a new church, and you see the windows and, the, and even the cross. You see how they designed the windows to be bigger, but still so you couldn't throw a rock in there unless you got lucky. And that is um, the common experience with a lot of Christians around the world. On one hand, I would quickly say, we are blessed because we don't have that type of persecution. But when I read the Beatitudes and Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, I then go, well, actually, who is blessed? I think Dixon is more blessed than us. And I'm thankful for a safe auditorium. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, they're blessed. So we get the opportunity to look at the chipper subject of being spiritually persecuted. Welcome. Glad you're here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Um, and we're going to read the Beatitudes one last time. And uh, if you have the Bible app and you look at locations and uh, events and all that, you can find that. I'd like to do something. We've not done this here, but in the, um, maybe just out of a sense of respect, I'd like for all of us to stand, and I'd like for us all to read the Beatitudes together. How about that? I didn't plan on, this is just spare the moment. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of time. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 3. We won't have it on the screen, so you've got to have a Bible or an app. You got it? You good? All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. There you go. You may be seated. As a massive reminder, and in case you're new, I want to show you an image that's been super helpful to me in understanding the, the flow of the Beatitudes, and it will especially help us today. Um, I, I see the Beatitudes as kind of this um, process of just becoming less of ourself and more like God. More of Him, less of us. Just th- this is our life. This is what the Bible calls sanctification or transformation, is that the more we follow Christ, the more like Him we should be, the less like ourselves we should be, and the Beatitudes kind of follow that process. Now, here's the deal, is if you actually cooperate with the Spirit in this, and you make this journey of acknowledging your spiritual need for God, that's what poor in spirit means, that Lord, I am spiritually bankrupt and I need you, I need help, okay, that's being poor in spirit, mourning for your sin, not just confessing your sin, but crying about it. Actually grieving over the loss of righteousness and innocence in your life. That's what mourning for sin is. Naturally, you become meek and humble as a result of understanding how you are. Automatically, being empty, you are hungry and you hunger for more of God. And so he fills you with his merciful heart. Blessed are the merciful. He fills you with his purity. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. He blesses you with his ability to be a peacemaker instead of a peacekeeper or a peacebreaker. Now here's the rub. If you are empty of yourself and full of God in a culture, in a world that has run from God, the last beatitude is what you get, persecution. And we are reminded that Jesus said, a student cannot be above his teacher. And if they persecuted him, and if they persecuted the prophets, it really should not be a surprise to any of us when we find any form of persecution for righteousness, not because we're an idiot, but because we are righteous in God's eyes. We should be surprised when persecution doesn't happen, not that it happens. A lot of American Christians get surprised when tribulation and suffering comes their way. We should be surprised when it doesn't. This is the theme of the scriptures. What is persecution really? Two definitions I'd like to offer you. One is on face value. 
Persecution is the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. There's, there's the way of the kingdom of heaven. There's the way of the kingdom of the world. The way of the kingdom of darkness. And persecution is what happens when those two clash. Second, slightly more encouraging, persecution is the world's endorsement that you're living a biblically normal life. And so you should ask, if I have not found persecution at all in my walk with the Lord, what's wrong with that? Not that you should search it out, but it tends to be the world's endorsing that you're following Jesus. And that's why we should rejoice. Not because it's fun, not because we're masochist, but because it means that there is a legitimacy to our faith. All of the Beatitudes are obvious and rational and right expectations of what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus. Let me ask you just a little quiz here. Um, do you think that it would be right and normal and obvious to expect a follower of Jesus to recognize that they need God? Is that normal? Yes. There you go. These are easy answers, by the way. <laughs> do you think it's obvious and natural to expect Christians to take their sins seriously and mourn over it? Yeah. Should we expect Christians to be humble instead of arrogant? Yes. Should we expect Christians to hunger for more of God instead of being apathetic? Yes. Should we expect Christians to be merciful and to have compassion on people who are in need and do something about it? Yes. Should we expect Christians to be pure in heart and sincere and not double-minded or deceitful? Should we expect Christians to be the people who can make peace where there's war? So should we expect that it would be right and natural and normal and obvious for people who are following Jesus to be persecuted and rejected and slandered and lied about? You see the rub. I frankly love that Christ is honest. This is the greatest sermon ever told, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, 10 verses in, he lets us know how it ends. There's no promise of you know, rainbows and sunshine and unicorns and lollipops. And then we get into it and realize, wait a minute, people don't like us. And he says, my bad, I left that part out. You didn't read the fine print. He didn't do that. 10 verses in, his most foundational teaching, he says, that when you are persecuted for righteousness, you will be blessed, you should rejoice, and that the reward is the kingdom of heaven will be given to you. The rule and reign of God will be given to you. I, I just, that's how I can trust Jesus. There's no bait and switch. Unfortunately, in kind of um, especially evangelical America, we have tend to turn the gospel into fire insurance. 
we've essentially said, and this is how I was trained as a pastor, is to tell people, heaven's great, hell's hot, forever's a long time, you should know your options. If you come forward and pray this prayer, you will have eternal fire insurance. And we don't necessarily share the full gospel message that, one, the gospel is God wants to get you into heaven before you die, not just after you die. And also, following Jesus comes at a high cost, and it will probably end with suffering and tribulation and persecution. I've never heard that in an altar call. And yet Christ is upfront about it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul tells young Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will probably run the risk of maybe suffering some persecution. That's not what it says, is it? It's, it's pretty much a guarantee. You will suffer persecution if you want to live a godly life. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, if you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Now, there are times Christians are persecuted not because of righteousness, but just because we're dumb. Sometimes I watch The Simpsons, and I watch Ned Flanders, and I say, we earned that. Like that, we deserve that, you know. There's times where we deserve it. And there's a lot of times, like when Dixon prays for a woman and God heals her. He didn't deserve to have his car blown up for it. God's people, I hate to tell you this, have been persecuted. It's always been a part of his story. If you read the scriptures, you find very quickly that Abel was persecuted by his brother Cain. The first murder was persecution. Moses said, let my people go. And the whole empire of Egypt tried to run them out and kill them. We celebrate a meal in that spirit. David was persecuted by Saul. Elijah was persecuted when he went against the false prophets. Jeremiah was persecuted. Isaiah was persecuted. I forget which one it was. was, I I didn't have time to verify, but one of them, either Isaiah or Jeremiah, How they clocked out was they were put in a hollow log and sawed in half. Read Hebrews. It says, some shut the mouths of lions and some were sawed in half. One of them was Isaiah or Jeremiah. I forget which one it was. Daniel in the lion's den, persecution. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fire. Persecution. John the Baptist, his head was cut off for rebuking Herod for... um, marrying his brother's wife. Jesus was obviously persecuted. All of the apostles ended up giving their life for Christ. John the apostle wouldn't die, so they finally threw him away on the island of Patmos. Peter was put in prison and crucified upside down. Paul, outside of Jesus, suffered 
the most out of anyone in the New Testament. So it's, a, it's interesting when Christians go, well, Lord, why am I being persecuted? Have we read the story? This is what you get when you live in a world that is anti-God and you are full of his spirit. This is what you get. There's a couple of ways persecution comes. The obvious way persecution comes is through violence. Dixon is an example of that. Dr. King is an example of being a peacemaker in the name of Jesus, and he was killed for it. Years ago, in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a a shooting at a church. And these people had welcomed this young man in. And they were persecuted violently. A lot of the KKK attacks were at black churches. If it's possible to do evil upon evil, that would be it. There's there's also nonviolent ways we're persecuted, which is probably how most of us might find persecution. Um, years ago, I was working at a co-working space um, called Geekdom. I was, doing, I was a graphic designer there, and I had my door open in my office. And earlier that day, I was driving, doing an errand, and it was lunchtime, and I was hungry. And the window was down, and I drove past Chick-fil-A, and I smelled the Lord's chicken. <laughs> and so I got a chicken sandwich, because chicken always tastes better when it's Christian, you know? And so I had Chick-fil-A. And this was in the time when Chick-fil-A was being boycotted because Dan Cathy was asked a question on how, what he believed about marriage. And then um, they tried to burn his business down for just answering a question that he was asked. Don't get me started. And so um, I had eaten, I had, and it was in the trash, and I'm working. And somebody, that was actually a friend of mine that I was loving and ministering to, Walked by my office, he um, leaned in to say hi, he looked down and saw the trash can, saw Chick-fil-A, and then yelled out, who's the effing bigot? And I was like, what? And then began to go on a rant and to yell at how I was a bigot because I ate at Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A hates gay people. It's an example of nonviolent persecution. He didn't ask a question. He didn't ask, tell me your beliefs. Tell me how you understand it. He saw the red and white bag and went off. There's obvious ways. There's subtle ways of persecution. There's persecution from the system of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a great example of this, who was one of the few Christians, or the few that we know of, who tried to actively work against Hitler. And he was put in prison, and he was killed a few days before that concentration camp was liberated. And the Nazi government killed him because he was trying to act out and go against um, the system of the world. The church persecutes people as well. We should not forget that it's the religious who killed Jesus. Pilate tried to let him go. 
Pilate tried really hard to let Jesus go, and it was the religious who yelled, crucify him, let his blood be on us. Martin Luther is an example of someone who was trying to say, this is the authority, not your politics. And they persecuted him. Don't you love this sermon? It's great. <laughs> I'm almost done. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter how it comes. What matters is how you and I respond. And I want you to think about how will you respond when the system of this world, the system of the kingdom of hell, takes issue with the spirit of God living inside of you? How will you respond? Jesus says not to retaliate. Don't foster resentment. Those are my, my, my hints. Here's what Jesus says. Rejoice. That's what you should do. You should rejoice. One of, one of uh, my favorite theologians says, humility is having the ability to take wrong patiently. Can you take wrong patiently? And can you rejoice? Persecution is the only beatitude that Jesus gives his own commentary on and explains it and gives us instructions on how to act because he knew this is the hardest one. The gospel message is, no surprise, that Christ was persecuted for his righteousness. When we celebrate the table, we, are remem- we remember in the words of institution that I pray, on the night that you were betrayed, the night that you went into several illegal trials in the middle of the night. Jesus was persecuted for his righteousness because of our unrighteousness. I want to throw a couple of questions that I'd like to offer to you. I don't like these questions, honestly. But the first one is, have you experienced being persecuted for righteousness' sake? Does the world approve you? I like being approved. I don't like making enemies. Where do you need more of the life of Christ in you? We are not to seek out persecution, but here's the deal. If you have more of the Spirit of God in you, it will, have, it will find you. Persecution will find you. If God is getting more of him in you, it will find you. It's inevitable. And kind of last, just kind of to zoom out, I would, maybe for the season of Lent, maybe you step back and look at the list of Beatitudes and pick one or two that you want to revisit and dive deeper in. And maybe you say, you know what? Humility is not a strong character trait of mine, and I need to root out the arrogance and pride that is in my life. And maybe you spend six weeks really taking that before the Lord, fasting and praying. I encourage you to do that. Well, that's it. Let's pray.
Jesus, first, we want to say thank you for pulling back the curtain of the universe and showing us who you are actually blessing. Those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty, those who mourn and grieve and are honest about their sin, those who humble themselves, those who hunger and thirst for you. Those who are filled with mercy and give it to others. Those who are pure in their heart and are sincere and not double-minded or double-mouthed. Those who are agents of reconciliation and peacemakers. who are willing to risk the relationship to speak the truth in love. Thank you, God, that you bless your children who suffer and are slandered and are lied about and are attacked and persecuted and many times killed on account of you. Lord, we confess it's a hard teaching, but we know it to be true, and we ask for your help. Help us to repent of our Western American arrogance when it comes to the faith. Help us to repent of the comfort that we have grown accustomed to in Christendom. Lord, help us to see that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. And God, we recognize there is no Easter Sunday unless there is first a Good Friday. Lord, I pray for my friends here who don't know you deeply yet. Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see the crucified and buried and risen Lord for their unrighteousness. God, I pray you would shine light on the darkness. And that you would reinforce any faith that is wavering in this room. But for those who are weary and well-doing, God, bless them. Strengthen them. For those who are just experiencing a weariness in their souls, Jesus, call them to your feet and exchange the yoke that they're carrying. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world in Iran, in places like China, and even in Europe and other areas of the world where it is not popular and it is not approved to be a follower of you. God, I ask that you would strengthen with an inner strength that we could not even comprehend. 
Lord, have mercy on those who are suffering because of your love. Have mercy on the wives and the husbands and the children and the family members of those who have been persecuted for your love. God, I pray you bring a peace that would bypass every logical, reasonable understanding known to man or woman and that they would receive the blessing of this teaching. And God, I invite you to wake, wake us up to those realities around the world and even in our country and in our city and in our neighborhood where, where there is persecution, we might not know it. Finally, God, help us to not be persecutors. For those who do great evil and use your name to cover it up, God, we pray that you would just as you met Saul on Damascus Road, meet those who are using your name to abuse. And set them straight, Lord.